Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tech Connect Podcast. I'm John Martin. And I'm Dean Reverman. Dean, pop quiz. Yes. What are the first three industrial revolutions? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Industry 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. No? <laughs> well, yes, sort of. All right. My understanding, for very quick analysis here, yeah. the first industrial revolution was when you mechanized the factories. You yes. actually added machinery. But it was probably like a lot of like water, steam-powered stuff at that right. time. Yep. Maybe 1800s, I guess. Yeah. Mid-1800s, yeah, 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 yeah. like that. Right. Uh, second, maybe around the turn of the 20th century, you had electricity. And the assembly line, which, ah, you know, creates revolutionary, you know, absolutely, so you have, so you have mass production at that point. Yep. Uh, then let's say mid twentieth century, you get into computers, mm -hmm. automation, mm -hmm. kind of leading up to the turn of this century, mm -hmm. where we have now entered a fourth industrial revolution. So they say. Yes. So they say. Yes. That's I'm right. not going to explain too much of that yet. I'll leave that to our guest today. Yep. Uh, yep. But that is our main topic today: is industry 4.0. 4.0, rather. Yep. We have uh, Jim Foster from Elo joining us today. He's going to explain a little bit from his point of view where we are in that fourth industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about you know where customers are with this when they might be ready, cues you should be paying attention to that might mm -hmm. indicate that, hey, you know, maybe I should be talking to him about some of this yep. modern new age, you know, technology and automation that's stuff out there. stuff that's going on exactly. out there. Yep. Mm -hmm. We'll talk a little bit about uh, display technology. Obviously, that's Elo's bag, you know. Yep. So, in the wheelhouse, yep. Exactly. So, you know, how it kind of fits in, how Android fits in. Mm -hmm. We'll get into the supply chain as a whole, too, and how it's being impacted uh, by all of this. How can right you not talk too? about supply chain at this point? Well, yeah. whether we want to or not, you know, it's <laughs> it used kind to be of, COVID. Now we talk about supply chain. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be our new dirty word for the next year That's or so right. is the supply chain. So uh, all of that plus our usual value to the VAR and what's tech connecting with us. It's time to plug in and get connected. Welcome to the Tech Connect Podcast. It's time to get connected. All right, as I mentioned, our guest today is Jim Foster. Jim is a business development manager for ELO. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Tell us a little bit more uh, about yourself, your world. You, you gave us a little bit of a hint about your personal life that maybe you might want to get into uh, here at the beginning <laughs> also, but I'll leave that up to you. Right. Well, hi, guys, and hello, everyone that's watching. Yeah, thanks for your time. So my name's Jim Foster, so I'm um, business development manager for ELO. So my responsibilities are actually two of our um, growth markets. So I'm responsible for the global business development for um, industrial. Um, and when we say industrial, that encompasses warehousing, transport and logistics, um, manufacturing, process control, all that good stuff. Um, and then also the gaming market. So two, mm. you know, you, you couldn't really be much further apart markets. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm responsible for, for both of those. And they're really important uh, growth markets for ELO. So, you know, you know Blue Star and, and your, your your VAR network, you all know that we're very strong in retail point of sale, et cetera. But we do a lot of our business in, in the industrial market. And, and also it's been one of our one of our heritage points as well. You know, we, that's really the area where we started with you know, 50 years ago. So that's something that we're trying to now grow or we are growing as, as part of our growth strategy. And, and you know, I'm, I've been in the role about four months now. So I was previously um, in a, a regional sales role responsible for our UK market. Um, and now moving into more of a vertical uh, responsibility. So, um, yeah, happy to be here today. Um, I'm based in the UK. You can tell from my accent. Um, I'm actually in, in in Manchester, so not the Queen's English. Much much cooler than that. Um, and yeah, one of the uh, yeah we we talked about just before we started was about the guitar. So everybody always talks about um, 
guitars. Some, somebody asked me the other day, do I actually play guitar? And I was like, well, that'd be a very expensive wall decoration if you <laughs> putting them on the wall if you don't play it. But, you know, uh, I forgive them for asking. So, um, yeah, uh, happy to be here today and to, to talk about uh, industry. 4.0. Yeah, 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 awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's in a metal band. That yeah, was the yeah other that was the other, yes, the yes, other yes, point. Yes, there. yes, yes right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're curious what so kind of music? Yeah, maybe we'll get into that later. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, him and D might just riff on it for a while. Right. I'll just I'll go take a break or something. So, yeah. Yeah. well, I, well, thank you very much for joining us. We do want to get into this conversation about industry 4.0. And to your point, and we'll get to that a little bit later. You know, you're right that you know maybe people don't think of ELO and display technologies being a big part of maybe like that mm. manufacturing side or mm-hmm. even some of the warehousing stuff, mm-hmm. but they're there is obviously an important important angle there that we're going to get to. Yeah. But let's start off, you know, Jim, how do you define this whole industry 4.0 and where we are right now with this fourth industrial revolution? It's kind of a sort of a vague term in a way. And I've seen a lot of different definitions. But how do you define it? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And, and to be honest, I thought you might um, try and catch me out with the what are the four. So I actually prepared <laughs> this, just so I was 100% clear on what the four are, because um, I thought you might try and catch me out with that, but you, but you asked Dean, so that's good. Um, so no, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the Industrial Revolution, it's actually quite something that's quite close to my heart anyway, because, um, you know, it actually originated in, in England. It was like late 1700s, and it was to do with the invention of the spinning jenny, which was a mechanical, um, like a foot-based mechanical contraption that was used to wind, you know, wind the cotton mm-hmm. around the bobbins. Um, and that's something that actually originated in the Manchester area. So we, we got this drilled into us as kids. You know, this was Cottonopolis and all, all these these nicknames for the city at the time, which wasn't great for the environment and all the pollution and stuff, but was was great for the for industry. And then it exploded from there. So, you know, we, we're always drilled into us that this was like the home of the Industrial Revolution. So, um, but yeah, second one, railroad, telegraph, all that good stuff, electricity, obviously. Um, third one was basically, you know, computers and, and the, the, the silicon and and all you know semiconductors and and that resulting in computing powers and and production lines and then the fourth i mean the fourth one really is it's a relatively new phrase right you know it's eight ten years old something like that um and it was coined by some german industrialists i believe um and looking for how they can get to the next stage of of efficiency savings and automation and really to me what it means is about interconnectivity between devices so it's you know it's between humans and devices it's between devices and other devices whether that's compute whether that's cloud servers sensors you know you think about iot and we know it in the consumer world right so you know you think about um the 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 home assistants i'm not going to say the name because she's going to react and then <laughs> she's going to ask me to talk to her i think you know what i mean right. um because i have one in my office and it's the the echo dot but i won't say the her name that begins with a um and you know we, we've got we've all got those in in the home or a lot of us have got those kind of things in the home i've got the the doorbell system on the camera i've got a heating system i've got security alarms that's all you know based from my smartphone and controllable by voice and all these things so in the you know in the consumer world this has been uh prevalent or certainly exploding really for the last few years in, in my life in the last probably 1.5 to two years um but in industry it's it's I wouldn't say behind, but it's taking a slightly different track. But it's about interconnectivity. It's about um, and you know how how those devices talk to each other, and more importantly, way more importantly, is what you do with that data. So you know what you do with that data and what that ultimately gives, because you know, in as 
as any salesperson knows, you don't sell the feature, you sell the benefit, right? So what's the benefit for the end user? The benefit is increased productivity, uh, reduced downtime, better data, which gives better decisions. You know, think about a factory. You know, if you have to go and find some data on a notebook, on a piece of paper, on a on a, even a whiteboard, marker board, that, that takes time. You're not making the decision as quickly. The decision isn't as good, isn't, as, you know, uh, it, it's just not an efficient process. So it's really optimization through um, data on the on the sensor end is how that connects to the human and that's really where elo plays to be honest um it's how that data is used by the, the management or the or the user um and then it's it's the benefits that are acted upon you know after that as well and and it's i think the reason why it's hard with industry um and industry 4.0 why it's hard to quantify in in a you know in an elevator pitch or in one sentence is because it's not that straightforward there's so many elements of it there's so much complexity around it a, a, a bit like one of the topics we'll 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 talk about later it's it, it can sometimes be a bit nebulous you know if you talk to somebody that's not in our industry that's not dealing with technology and hardware um in in the in the business and, and you know enterprise world they couldn't explain it to you probably most people you know go down the poor bar you know you're at a bar you talk to someone you say hey what does industry 4.0 mean to you if they're not in if they're not in the tech world they wouldn't have a clue so it's not mm. it's not a a general term that's that's yet used outside of outside of us really or you know our industries that's a really good point uh jim and, and when you think about it and i'm glad you harped on data because data is a key component mm -hmm. of it and when you think about the other industrial revolutions i mean like a steam engine you know that's that's pretty straightforward Not a lot of data you're getting out of well, that. no it's, i mean it's pretty straightforward you got a railroad it's 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 what it's transporting goods right, from point right. a to point b revolutionized yes but you know the pretty easy concept right, to get right. to get wrap your head around well Really, Industry 4.0 has a lot of complexity to it, which I think is what you're trying to speak to, Jim. You can't do an elevator pitch on something that is so complex. Yeah. I mean, the the analogy now is not only do we have a train, but there's sensors all over that train, mm -hmm. you know, determining speed, determining heat, determining all these things. Efficiency there. And that yeah. needs to be connected to other ERPs and other systems yep. out there to make this efficiency work. So it's, it's a complexity issue as well. And that really comes down to data and the ability to manipulate manipulate data so when you think about industry 4.0 and in my mind it's you know it's our collective ability to harness the data and manipulate the data to achieve these efficiencies and opportunities right, that are right. out there yeah. yeah and i appreciate the fact also that you mentioned that yes yeah, you know customers our customers or our vars customers rather and maybe even some of our vars for that matter mm -hmm. are not just wandering around talking about industry 4.0 no, right you know like hey what are we going to do with the fourth industrial revolution today <laughs> no no one's having that conversation. They didn't have it during the first three either. That's just not how you talk about these things. Right. So then that brings me to my next question, which is, let's assume, obviously, that our customers are not talking about it in this particular manner. They're not saying, hey, um, we want to get on board this Industry 4.0 thing. How do we yeah. do that? What kind of things should our bars be listening for with their customers in any, you know, regardless of where it is, whether it's a manufacturing supply chain or whatever, that indicates that they're ready for some of the technologies and ready for this kind of, you know, evolution to a higher level of, you know, interconnectedness, uh, data collection, analytics. What do you think they should be listening for? Yeah, that, that's a really good question because, uh, and that's almost, you could argue, the biggest challenge in, in selling technology providing technology in, into these these markets when talking about industry 4.0 i mean the actual term itself oh there you go there's my uh there's my home smart device telling me 
somebody's just delivered something there you go so, <laughs> <laughs> so um so you know they, they don't ask such broad questions so industry 4.0 the you know nobody talks about that as you, as you mentioned john so you know it's not like you you have a conversation with the customer and say what's your industry 4.0 strategy no nobody says that right people don't mention that people say oh we we want to automate we want to add digitization to our workflow we want to have work instructions in the manufacturing line and that needs to be digital because some workers are remote they're not on site anymore they're you know they're remote so that's that's something that is you know really important and it's it's a difficult conversation you don't have that kind of nebulous conversation you have very specific and i think you know it also depends on the on the customer so you know if you think about some end users might want to be doing a big data move they might want to move factory from a to b there might be a consultant involved it might take 12 months to do it or longer it's a huge big super complex project those the questions that the var or the you know the the, the sales supply chain would ask is a different question to somebody that says okay, I'm a machine maker, an OEM of, of equipment, and I'm going to make uh, an upgrade to my machine, and now I need a display. I need a human interface device that's then going to, it needs to be bigger because it's more complex, for example. That, that's a different a different discussion. So I think it really depends. Um, but, you know, uh, and it, it also depends on what the, on what's happening. So if you think about typically in technology, they're iterative upgrades, right? I mean, you know, in in the consumer world they're not iterative we get big hits we get iphone coming in and disrupting the market you get all these smart devices coming in disrupting the market consumers like to test out cool gadgets in in, in industry and in, in enterprise worlds that isn't how it works especially industrial you know the, the, the heavy end of industrial the, the the oil and gas the manufacturing plants the food processing they're not going to take a chance on cutting edge tech right they're going to make a very small iterative change step by step try this, try that, test, might last six months, pilot. It's a very, very, you know, much slower process. So um, it's a little bit of a cliche and I'm kind of answering your question with a question, but, it, you know, what does the what is that end user looking at? Is it a big project? Is it a small project? Is it buying a new type of machine? Is it a, um, a data center transfer? Is it software? Is it hardware? So th that's the challenge, right? H how do you define what, the, you know, it's the typical sales challenge. You've got to get close to the customer, define what they want and, and take it from there. I would agree with that. And you can pick up on clues when you're, when you're getting into it. I, I would say that, you know, a component of this question, you know, what, what are they doing or asking for that can mm. tip off a reseller that, hey, there might be an interest in mm. what we're calling this umbrella term industry 4.0 culture. If they have a corporate culture that, that embraces connecting to other partners and, and wanting to develop, you know, get out of their box, you know, right. if they're just an aluminum extruder and that's all they do all day is just you know pound out whatever mm. this little widget or if they're a restaurant that really is just doesn't really want to think about how they can improve their customer experience or anything like that if they don't really have the culture you're not really going to have a great time talking to them about industry 4.0 right. type of uh, conversations right uh, one of the, one of the use cases I could say is that you know maybe your end user has a, a desire to go a little bit deeper into the solution that they're providing to their customers. So I'll give you a use case like 
we worked for a large hospitality chain back in a previous life that I had, uh, and we were involved in digital many many boards for that entity. And they wanted to do, you know, even back then, this is going back a decade, they wanted to have a better customer experience. So they were thinking about integrating their point of sale systems, their food spoilage and stuff like that into the digital signage so that, you know, there's real time information and all, right. and all those types of things. Well, that's data, right? And that, that's taking it to the next level. Well, if there's no desire uh, for those types of things, it's going to be a really hard uh, sledding for you to try to convince, you know, for a reseller to try to convince whoever they're talking to that, you know, they should embrace some of the things, the, some of these trends that are happening in the industry of Industry 4.0, if you will, and, yep. and connecting it and all the things that are coming together there. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, what you mentioned also about the idea that companies that are reticent to make these changes and these moves, especially in the industrial space, especially mm -hmm. in supply chain, that has come up time and time again on this show. We've yep. had plenty of guests that have noted that, that, hey, it's it's not that easy to go to somebody and say, yeah, there's this new cool technology. You want to try it out when they go, no, because that could totally upend, disrupt my process. Like right. our, our existence and our functionality and our profitability is based on being able to churn out this widget in mm -hmm. certain amounts, you know, every hour of every day. And mm -hmm. anything that stops that from happening and slows us down for even five minutes mm -hmm. to, to flip a new switch or turn something on. And if it doesn't work for some reason and shuts us down for a day or two is massive amounts of money that could potentially be lost. So you're right. There's a lot of little baby steps that you have to take to get there. But but I but I do. And it can be hard. It, it can. But it can then be really if, hard. if you know, but if they are of the mindset for it and their culture's in the right place mm -hmm. and they are saying the right things, at least you know you can start heading that way. But yeah, understand that it may not be as simple as all right today they're going to be just you know this straightforward standard you know automation that they're already doing, and then tomorrow we're going to flip a switch and turn on. <laughs> Connectivity and machine learning and <laughs> IoT and everything's going to be great. No, yeah. it's, it's not going to happen. No, overnight, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's a dirty step. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, so Jim, you know, let's let's get into what Elo obviously does best, which is uh, display technology. Um, so, how does that fit into these to these spaces? You know, when you're thinking of the heavy industrial side of things, or even on the warehousing side of things, supply chain. You know, where where do you play? How are you helping contribute to this this shift in technology? And how does Android play a part in that? As well yeah great question again so it's um th there's a lot of um a lot of use cases actually that um I could, I could probably spend two hours talking about use cases i'm not going to but you know th there's there's so many different potential use cases with uh, display tech now uh, some of them are obvious and some of them are less obvious so the more obvious ones if you think about a um, production line and we kind of in in our kind of internal elo speak we we call it um manufacturing control um, and then, um, or machine control, I should say, and then process control. So machine control would be something like a surface mount machine or a robot or a, um, you know, any kind of robot or machine or, or yeah, workstation that would, that you are controlling it with a, with a pre, you know, a program software and you need a human machine interface. So you see the, you know, HMI, human machine interface, that, that phrase is banded around a lot. But what does that mean in reality? It basically means a way for the human to interact with the machine. Um, and historically, you know, look at industrial machines. You've seen these big, ugly buttons with like plastic covers. So you don't hit them by mistake. You've got or even some of the kind of joystick kind of robotic things like you get on forklift trucks, these kind of things. Um, and they're great and they're super durable and, and, you know, reliable, but they're not flexible, right? So if that machine is doing 80% of the time function A, and 20% of the time function B, the, the the interface, the HMI needs to flex between the different use cases. So in the past, 
the machine was very specific. It did one thing and one thing only. Um, now things are getting flexible. So if a machine's doing 10 different things, you can't have 10 different button decks or extra panels you unplug and plug. That's, that's just not realistic. So having a, a touchscreen, whether it's a, an all-in-one device or a screen connected to a separate compute, almost doesn't matter in this example. Um, that's a really obvious use case where flexibility is controlled by software. So our touchscreen is the interface to the human um, via touch, of course. Um, but then the, the software controls where the buttons are, you know, what you need to do to initiate them, any kind of login requirements, you know, pin login, facial recognition, using some camera accessories that we've got, et cetera. So that, that's one obvious use case, and that's, that's a machine-controlled human interface device. Um, where we've not played until relatively recently, I mean, not in the last couple of years, but, but certainly in the last 10 years, we've started playing much more, is what we call process control. So that might be, you know, think about a car manufacturing plant or a food processing plant where they have a process and it's almost like, think about a kitchen display system with a bump bar mm -hmm. where, you know, it goes to station A or station one. I do my part, you know, I, I fry the burgers, I pass it on to the next guy who puts it in the bun, the next person puts the salad on or whatever, and you bump it from, from station to station. That kind of process control in a, in a manufacturing environment that's becoming much more popular to have touch screens and and why is that you know why can't they just do it on a notepad or just on a, a simple button well because you need extra again it's flexibility right so think about you're in a manufacturing line your part is to put the wheel on for example um and you put the wheel on and you bump it to the next person that's fine but what if it doesn't work what if it goes wrong what if there's a health and safety issue what if you need to call a supervisor? What if you need to look at work instructions? You know, you can, on a touchscreen, you can go hit a different tab, for example. You can look at the instructions. Ah, this is a different wheel because it's a different model. Ah, and you put it on in a different way. So the the kind of touchscreen tech in this case um, isn't exactly the same as controlling a machine, but it's got some overlap. But it's more about quick access to data, metrics, safety triggers. If there's an issue, it can flash on the screen saying, hey, you know, the pressure's too high, the temperature's too low, you know, whatever metrics you might might be interested in. So that's kind of the other true industrial um, use case. So, you know, the, the, the machine control and then the, the process control, they're what we would call really kind of true industrial. Um, but then there's a lot of stuff on the periphery of that. So think about warehouses and, and from, from an ELO perspective, we, we include warehousing and, and, you know, data capture and all that kind of in our industrial area as well um, which obviously does overlap into into retail a little bit um but think about uh pick pack ship stations i think you guys in the u.s call them pick pack ship stations right we mm -hmm. normally we sit in, in in the uk we call them packing benches but yeah same thing right yeah. so think about um the massive move these days to um online ordering and collection in store and um uh, ball piss you guys call it right so mm. ball piss and, and all this stuff you, you need things in the back in the back end, the, the the supply chain intra store to support that, or at least intra supply chain to support that. And you know, packing stations having a little notepad and pen probably was was sufficient, you know, a few years ago or even pre-COVID. But now, you know, if you're adding 20 seconds to that customer journey because you've got to go and get it from the warehouse, that's not a happy customer because it's instant gratification culture that we live in, right? You you do it, you choose it, you want it, you go. There's no waiting around that that's not really acceptable these days so 
know, that's another use case where we're seeing massive growth is these uh, pickback ship stations in warehousing, transport, logistics, etc. And then there's there's also some on the peripheral. So if you think about um, control rooms, so control rooms in in you know in plants. Think about Homer Simpson in the uh, Simpsons intro with you know the nuclear rod falls down the back of his shirt or whatever it is. He's he's in the he's asleep at the desk right with all the different uh, all the different displays that's like a, a classic control panel you know they were historically just cctv setups right there was no there was no dashboarding in there there was no data as such apart from a live a live tv feed um that's totally changed now so you think about um even even you know hvac um, fire um hospitals police you know any kind of law enforcement army military um all that kind of stuff needs control rooms and factories and no you know no difference really so control rooms with displays and touch screens are again really really good use case um and then some stuff there which is very overlapped with with the corporate world so if you think about in a in a factory they have meeting rooms they have collaboration areas either in a separate meeting room or also on the on the factory floor so you know, we we a lot of us have probably seen these kind of daily scrum meetings, or you know, the kind of daily QA meeting where you go and you crowd around the, whether it's the the QA manager or the or the boss or the, the production leader of that cell, and they talk about the metrics of that day. You know, when I first came out of education and started selling into these kind of markets, it was all about a whiteboard and paper printed and stuck on the whiteboard. Mm. That's not the case now. It's now digital, right? And for all the reasons we talked about, it's uh, real-time information you can make better decisions you can flag up uh, data inconsistencies you know most of the time when somebody's making a graph and printing it on a piece of paper and putting it on a whiteboard they're manipulating the data themselves that's not smart right that's just coming from from them doing it manually so so that kind of collaboration thing is also really important on the and, and dashboarding on the production line um, and then probably the only other use case I would mention was uh, is the mobile um, area and and device scanning and inventory checking and, and stock and things like that so you know we we developed um rm50 our a new mobile device that came out earlier this year and that's really our first you know movement into the uh into the mobile area and and that's been dominated by android devices and that's android's my next kind of i'm kind of leading into android here but that's been dominated by android devices for for a long time um, and, you know, there's a lot of use cases in the warehouse, whether it's inventory checking, whether it's um, stock rotation, whether it's, you know, even taking payment front of house is, is, a, is an obvious retail use case. Um, and when you kind of loop them all together, actually, we've got some tech that covers everything, whether, it, you know, we've got our mobile device, it's a 5.5 inch um, touchscreen, and then we've got up to a 65 inch touchscreen, which might work in a dashboarding application. So. You know, we we have actually got technology types and and um, you know products that will cover all the angles, really. You know, and thank you for that overview. That's it, it, here's the good news: is that the interactive displays are needed in so many areas of Very where so. Industry 4.0 is going. Uh, we, we, you know, it was it was nice to get that overview. Thank you, Jim. And, and we could dive into any single one oh, yeah. of those areas. I, I'm just going to pick on a couple of them that that I think really truly are. 
you know, unique in the sense that when I'm going to go to the collaboration that you were talking about in in the break rooms and stuff like that. Look, in, in an industrial setting, right? And and we have this in our warehouse. You know, you have workers that don't have access to computers and stuff like that in uh, WebEx or whatever it might be to do collaboration. So uh, they they actually have a great tool called Huddle, where it, you know it enables uh, folks to do that to mm-hmm. connect and collaborate and do interactive things on the display as though it were this kind of virtual not yeah virtual whiteboard right. that many people can utilize and i mean that is the wave of the future you know how how do we uh, you know engage humans in the process and get it and get it all working that would be one of them um mobile workstations another one you know we're seeing a huge push in mobile workstations and the flexibility that an interactive screen gives you over uh, keyboarding or something like that is right. is there. It's, yep. it's definitely there. And then finally, the dashboard. I'm going to go back to Homer Simpson. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, people in control room environments, they're asked to do so much. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it, back in the day, okay, maybe you had all these buttons and stuff like that, but, you know, there's even more data coming. Those people are not susceptible. You're not on an island where there's just not more data coming right, to them. Right. There is more data and they have to be able to manipulate between dashboards and sources and stuff like that. And so an interactive world, even telescoping up, as we've all talked about, we're all accustomed to interacting with screens and doing that. Of course, there's an application in these industries as as defined. I was just going to say the same thing. We all carry these around in our pockets. We're all used to touch technology at this point. There's no reason not to have that incorporated. It feels weird not to. And the thing is also, as the workforce gets younger and younger, but you know, I guess as a way of saying, you know, as the 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 workforce that's older that was you know ex- that was in there before touchscreen mm-hmm. has long gone. The younger generations are going to think that is the only acceptable way to interact with things. Mm-hmm. Just an example: my son, four years old, even at two years old, he had already seen enough of you know phones and iPads and little tablets and stuff to think you know to know that stuff was touch. Yeah. And I remember like when he started watching television on a somewhat regular basis, and you know, I'm using the Apple TV, and it's got like the app layout on my TV. He would go up sometimes and yeah. try to touch the television. Great trick. Thinking yeah. that's how I can <laughs> that's how I can make my show come on right. Like I want to watch this show. I'm touching it. Why isn't it working, Daddy? Oh. Like, well, that's actually not a touch screen. Sorry, son. You know, but uh, just that instinctiveness that's already sure. built into someone at that age tells yeah, right. you that like. By the time he's in the workforce, if you sat him down in front of a display panel that was buttons and CCTVs and, you know, I, I can't imagine that would still exist by then. But if you did, he'd probably be like, no, sorry. Yeah, I don't what, know how to use what this. What is this archaic place and why does it even yeah, exist? You right, know? So, that's right. Yeah. Very good point about that that technology. Well, then, Jim, you kind of hinted a little bit at supply chain as a bigger you know process here. So looking at that as a whole, and obviously a lot of innovation, a lot of change has happened over the last year plus from you know where we were then versus where we are now. And mm. while you know COVID itself may not be quite as the the large concern as it may have been a year ago, the changes that have come about, especially in supply chain, which is the new dirty word, I guess, at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, as we talked about at the beginning, is you know is affecting how we move forward. So. What is what do those impacts mean? You know, how should how should we be asking people to step things up in manufacturing, distribution, warehousing to to kind of meet the moment right now? Yeah, that that's a super important point, and it, and it's actually um, a bit of a bridge be- between markets. So um, I'll use retail front of house and warehouse back of house as, as a, a real life example here. So you know, if you think about um, you know, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but the the, the click and collect or bulpis, the, the curbside collection, all this kind of, you know, 
thing that's been accelerated and catalyzed by COVID. I mean, they existed before, right? But it, they weren't kind of a mandatory expectation from from the end user. They were something that was a bit of a novelty to, oh, you can order it and you know collect it in store. Wow, what what a what a great idea! Um, but why would I do that when I can go to the store? So you know, the world's changed, um, and you know, these front of house initiatives to keep the customer excited and attracted need something behind to support that and you know has the front of house taken too much focus from the from the retailer or, or the, the service provider and they've forgotten a little bit about back of house arguably a little bit um a lot of them talk a good game about yeah we can optimize you know optimize the the customer journey and you can order it online click it in store but but it's it's been quite lumpy and, and certainly my own user experiences it's not been as, as seamless as the as the retailers and the and the these big brands would make you believe you know you, you talk about ordering it online by the time you actually go through that online process it's like yeah you can have it delivered to the store and it'll be there in two days it's like well that's not the same as my expectation my expectation is that you order it and i go in one hour and it's there it's picked it's already in the warehouse and then it's just somebody take that put it in a you know an area with my name on it or reference code and then they give it me and and that's not really where it is at this point or some retailers obviously do a lot better than others and, and they're all kind of you know a bit of an arms race because that's what everybody expects but that that under the you know the, underneath the tip of the iceberg the bit under the water so to speak that's super important and that's where we're seeing a lot of movement now to try and catch up with what these brands are promising the customer because everybody's competing with amazon everybody's competing with somebody sat behind a piece you know computer or a screen whether it's a touchscreen on a tablet or a home PC or whatever, or traveling, and you go, yep, I need that for tomorrow, order it, it'll be there next day. So much more convenient than going to a store. And of course, bricks and mortar always have their place and they will continue to do so, but they've got to focus on the customer experience because nobody's going to want to go to a store, stand in line, wait around, is it available, is it not? I mean, the thought to me as a consumer of going to a store and not knowing if it's in stock gives me heart palpitations. Really, I mean, you know, the thought of it is like, well, I could drive for 30 minutes and they might not have it, then I'm not going to take that chance. Mm. No, think about that 10 years ago. You just go, wouldn't you? You just go and yeah. see if they've got it. And if they haven't, you'd go somewhere else. And so the world's changed. So what does that mean in the background? So, you know, these kind of supply chain efficiencies and digital transformation, you know, it, you couldn't try it on before. So think about, you know, shoe shop or, or clothes so you want to go and try stuff on so there's always going to be bricks and mortar for, for shoes or clothes fashion um, but you need to have that supply chain completely optimized so what, what does that mean you know you need um, real-time data that's completely live within the organization so the days of you know saying oh i'll call the next store in the next town and see if they've got stock for you mr foster i mean you'd laugh right as a consumer if the if, if the retailer said Oh, I'm just going to make a call and see if they've got stock in that size. You'd say, what? You have to make a phone call for this. So, you know, that's got to be seamless. So that's, so we're talking about cloud infrastructure, database infrastructure, potentially there, you know, using your Amazon web services and all these kind of um, providers from a hardware perspective, like us, that, you know, you, you've got to have that backend connected, but once you've got that backend data working, how do you then manifest that to the, the human? And again, that's where we step in. And is that human a staff member? Maybe. Is that human a, a customer? Maybe. So that might be that 
that touchscreen is the point of sale device and has that hook to another store in another city so you can see if they've got stock that might be a um in the warehouse that might be a stock checker where the staff member can go and check if there's stock in an, another location that might be and i use a real example there's, there's one of the the big retailers in the us I, I can't name names but they've implemented some of our hardware into um they've actually taken the same technology from front of house with price checkers and, and similar applications and actually moved it into into the back of house for um deliveries from uh, you know direct store deliveries as the phrase is so that might be a vendor supplying to this 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 brand and they drop in their goods on a pallet and the delivery driver checks in on a um in our case it's an all-in-one device and they either scan a qr code or they punch in a reference number whatever it might be and then they say yeah i've now dropped my one pallet of i don't know garden chairs or you know whatever it might be it could be anything right um and you check in so then it's immediately in their stock system they know that the drivers come in they might have a camera might take a picture of his face might link to the cctv so that kind of driver delivery checking is one really cool use case um and the same the, the, the cool part about this is that it's the same hardware exactly the same hardware that they've got front of house for price checkers and point of information and also back office or back of house for time time stamps or time clocks for the employees it's the same tech it might mm. be the same device depending on the you know the, the footfall and the and, and how busy that route is so you know staff member comes in clocks in for the day books vacation days whatever it might be all through the same device back of house so you know connecting everything back of house is super important and and if it's not then ultimately the end user is going to get a bad experience and that retailer or that that brand whatever kind of or, or even just that factory um supplying another brand that they're gonna they're gonna lose business because they're not keeping up you know it's, it's really an arms race that's it. I mean, it spiders out. You know, if you think about it, you know, just taking that use case of a retailer where, yeah, supplies are coming in. Well, in order for them to get efficiency, everybody in that supply chain has to be efficient. And so I like your commentary at the beginning there, Jim, is, is dead on. And we've talked about it, how the consumer side is definitely influenced what we always refer to as back of house. Well, what is back of house? Back of house is manufacturing. The, you know, the, 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 the putting together of these goods uh, in this case, uh, you know, in, in devising that. Well, you know, when you think about where supply chains are today and, and, and how manufacturers are trying to step up their game and trying right. to be uh, relevant to that, I think that everybody's becoming aware. Even if you're a widget manufacturer, you're aware that you are in a chain, obviously, and that chain needs visibility right. along the way. The only way that we're going to get more efficiency is to have greater visibility of, of what's happening. How it manifests itself in a manufacturer and kind of connecting what Jim was talking about, you know, at the production line, when we've talked about customization, well, how is a manufacturer going to be able to pivot to customize whatever's being produced on the line unless that data is coming in in real time and an operator can make that change via a device, you know, right, or right. via a control panel that's touch panel. Oh, we've got these 10 orders that needs this customization, you know, execute go. There's still a human interface in mm -hmm. order to make that happen. 
we're not going to get there uh, unless these, you know, these blends of technologies happen. And, and yes, I'll just harp on the fact that the human interface is definitely a part of that. You can try to automate it as much as you want, but there's still a human in, involved usually right. in the process somewhere along the way. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's it interesting. Is. I also, I'll make a commentary here. It's, it's, it's such a paradox for manufacturers right now because they understand where their supply chain was before COVID. But, man, all that is, like, really blowing up right now you know where do our supplies come is it the just in time inventory really can we do that if right, it's sitting right. on a boat you know in, in an la dock somewhere yep. that we can't even have access to uh really really kind of things are in flux yeah well you i remember a few times last year in 2020 you used to say oh stuff that was on the whiteboard of the right. future yep. suddenly became the no we got to figure out how to do this right now yeah. And and I think there's still a lot of there's still a lot of companies, a lot of industries that are still struggling with that. That mm-hmm. you know maybe they they were able to find some patchworks or some band aids to get them through, mm-hmm. just keeping afloat and in business throughout the you know the the bulk of the worst part of the pandemic. But now mm-hmm. that we're kind of you know easing back, reevaluating, out of it, realizing yeah. like okay, I can't I, can't, I I cannot go backwards. There's nowhere there's no backwards at this point. It has to be forward. But I've still got to figure out how do I make this a part of my regular routine workflow and processes and and data points and analytics that I was not ever looking at before. Mm-hmm. And I think there's still a lot of people that are struggling with that. And I think that's where our VARs can maybe can potentially help out a little bit. You well, know? I think there's going to be a, yeah, I think there's going to be a, a rush to near shore and, and really kind of rethink supply chains, yeah. honestly. Yeah. And the only way that we're going to be able to get there and compete globally, because we're not going to, you can't, uh, I don't care what country you are, you can't not think that there's a global aspect to it. You're going to have to become much more efficient yep. at how you produce things in, in a local nature. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up this main conversation with a quick little talk about networking and security because, mm. you know, as we talk about this connective world yep. and the cloud, uh, you know, automation, you know, all this stuff requires obviously, you know, a, a network obviously that's reliable. That's mm-hmm. a big part of things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and we know that from, again, from previous conversations that a lot of these warehouses and distribution centers, manufacturing plants may not be as secure as they, as we would expect them to be or want them to yep. be. So, you know, where are we with that, Jim, from your perspective? You know, how important is all of that to making sure that we can get to the, the future that we're talking about here when it comes to incorporating network and security? Yeah, I mean, it's it's arguably one of the most important points because you know as as things expand as as ideas and and processes scale then security is always always often something that 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 trails a little bit you know you look at some of these horror stories you see on the news about i think it was a company in norway that got this ransomware hack and and they they couldn't get into their system and they basically started again from zero from the paper copies so you know that's that's like really worst case scenario, right? I mean, they had to, they had to, those paper copies were like nine months out of day and, but it was better than zero. So always oh, better than paying, you know, millions of dollars or whatever the ransom was. So, you know, security is super important. Um, I was on a, a webinar earlier this week from um, one of the prominent players in the, in the semiconductor industry. And they talked, you know, like a massive amount of the discussion was about security. And it's, you know, it's about security. It was about hardware security, physical security, but, you know, primarily software and, and how the hardware and software, in, in, you know, interconnect and middleware and, and you know, other elements in that stack. So, you know, it's it's really important. And, you know, if you think about what happens when something's hacked, what about a power cut? What about a server failure? What about a failure of the cloud provider? 
when you when you make everything interdependent it, it becomes more even more critical that they all work in harmony and if one point fails you've either got to have some very very robust redundancy things in place or it, or it you know it turns bad right you know then it, it gets it can basically you know everything goes down so again i always like to compare things to to consumer you know the real world um or you know was the personal world you know we're all working from home now or a lot of people working from home if your internet goes down you can't really do very much so you know you, you're you know this critical point of failure that that is okay you know it's not life or death at home but in an industry where you're losing a hundred thousand dollars a minute if you're not manufacturing something then then that's that's a big problem right so you know security in terms of our kind of hardware is is also super important and that's something that we we really like to push when we're talking to our customers about android so um, i know we did talk about android a little bit earlier but just to kind of recap on it so you know it's it's not our only solution but it is definitely the what we see as a future huge um growth area for us and it's already a huge part of our business so you know android all-in-one devices in retail have been super relevant and prominent for a few years now you know seven eight nine years something like that look at all the self-service restaurants and things and and you know things like that the industry's been a bit slower to adopt android and uh, for a couple of reasons one is because of the and um, things we talked about general conservatism in industrial market you know they don't want to go into to say bleeding edge technology um windows and linux have, have, have been the stalwarts of industry for a long time you know especially some of these custom linux distributions which are very very specific for certain use cases and, and you know moving on from them will take many years to come um but also android is super secure out of the box right and that's something that we we can't really overstate so you know with our android enterprise devices android out of the box whether it's you know our older devices in android um 7 and 8 or the new generation that are coming out that are on android 10 our fourth generation that are on android 10 you know the security that you get out of the box and especially with some of our premium packages uh you know you you get all the the security patches for a, a certain amount of time you can get what we call os 360 which is like a extended care package on on the os and the security updates um, and you've got that you know the user's got a, a really strong peace of mind that it's it's an ecosystem that's used in the consumer world and the enterprise world industrial commercial whatever you want to call it um so and and it's been you know managed and maintained by one of the largest companies in the world and, and you know super smart um, ecosystem so you know it's not only about android but we see a massive benefit of the android ecosystem when it comes to security yeah and that's so critical moving forward i mean you you, you read the news stories everybody understands what's happening out yep. there uh if you're not involved we've talked about security here before if you're not sensitive to it involved in it have it as a good solution as a part of your tech stack uh shame on you because yeah. you know at the end of the road you know you have to be the solution provider to end users who uh, they themselves are, are not immune to the stories that are going on and, and things of that nature so it's a it's a complex web but it's definitely something that yeah. has to be worked out definitely and i think it's important to understand too that i think the hackers are starting to evolve a little bit mm -hmm. where it's not about username password hacks anymore yes that stuff still happens but when you when that stuff happens it's it's 
on on the whole smaller scale, you know, best case scenario, you get the password and username for somebody that has the same information that they use for their bank account as they used for their mm-hmm. Facebook or something, you mm-hmm. know, and, and and sure that can be helpful. But these these hackers, they know that the big money now is in this whole ransomware thing. Mm-hmm. They know that crippling an organization for even a small amount of time, and if they're willing to pony up the money for it to get back into business, that's big money that they can potentially get out of it. So which, which is insane. It really is. It truly is. But you know, and 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 again, you know, and. You're talking about something that goes beyond just single individuals or, you know, the bad press that you get out of, you know, a, a hack of user information necessarily to stuff that like, you know, in a hospital, you run a ransomware attack on a hospital, that's a potential life and death situation sure. that could be potentially happening sure. there. So, yeah. you know, again, yeah, I think that's a great conversation to have with companies about, look, this is not just about protecting user data anymore. Of course, we want to help you do that. But this is about protecting your enterprise as a whole and mm-hmm. protecting your business as a whole mm-hmm. that maybe could not survive even you know a few hours of, yeah. a, of a particular attack yeah. so yeah. let's talk Most companies about can't go a couple days of being yeah. completely down exactly and, yeah and, and no no Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, this has been a, a great conversation. Before we uh, wrap things up here, I do want to quickly, as always, thank our sponsors, of which ELO is one. We appreciate your support of the show. We could not do this without you. Uh, hey, if you uh, want to reach out to us, if you have um, thoughts about topics that yep. you want us to to get into on the show, what's in the on future, your mind? Kind of yeah, what's thing, on yeah. your mind? What are you interested in? Do you have some additional thoughts on Industry 4.0? Reach out to us. Uh, one you, one thing you can do is if you're watching on YouTube, like you know the video, subscribe yep. to our channel, leave us a comment. Uh, if you listen uh, on a podcatcher of your choice, if it's Apple Podcasts in particular, you can do a five-star rating and review for us. We'd love to hear from you and know what you think of the show. Or you can reach out to us directly. You can find us on Twitter at TechConnectPod. You can also email us, techconnect at bluestarinc.com. All right, let's wrap things up. First of all, with the value to the bar. This is our kind of takeaway, something maybe you can do immediately or, or work on in your business. And in particular, Jim, I want you to talk a little bit about ELO here. And, and I think you've kind of hinted at this a lot, but tell us about, you know, how do you help VARs in the industrial sector, warehousing supply chain? You know, where do you step in to help with this transition to this 4.0 and, and all these new technologies we've been discussing? Yeah, so uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think, you know, problem is that it's such a broad spectrum in terms of industry 4.0 there's so many different facets and use cases and you know i would add to that as as a slight caveat is that a lot of the var ecosystem as you guys know of course uh, might be quite specialized so you know that some of them are not that broad some of them may be specialized so they maybe have already gone down a certain path to an extent where they know what they know and and you know they're, they're a little bit siloed um, that said, not always. Sometimes it is as new technology comes along. Sometimes it's all wide open, and people, are, you know, VARs are moving into different spaces and and covering new 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 accounts that they can dig deeper in. So, you know, where can Elo help? So that's something that I have to say we've we've really got down to a T is in terms of our product portfolio and the the usability and interoperability. So we we have a, a phrase that we use internally so so unified architecture so what what we mean by that it's think of it like a lego blocks the building systems am i allowed to say lego blocks is that proprietary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i just did um so you know think of it like the building blocks so you know you can uh, if you take for example um a use case where it's a 10 inch touch display and that user is using it as an access control 
display to, to put in your passcode, to scan your badge, facial recognition, whatever it might be, to let you into the factory. That's one use case. In the factory, you might then have the same device, but a 22-inch version running a different software um, for process control. And that, you, you, the user's going to get the same look and feel. They're going to get the same touch feel on the glass. They're going to get the same touch performance with it because it's from us. It's going to be the same tech under the hood. It's going to work on the network in the same way. It's going to, um, the, the same reliability. It's going to be controlled by uh, the same uh, device management system, our ELOVU device management system, and the apps will work on it. If it works on the 10 inch, it'll work on the 22 inch. So what we're very good at is building an ecosystem that we know all works together. It all plays nicely together. And we can help the VARs explore that with the customer. And um, because it's not, it's very often not about single use cases. Almost all of our um, customer, end customers in this space have more than one use case. It's very, very rare that they would say, I've got this one specific use case. They go to their chosen VAR or partner and say, help me with this. And then we help the VAR and we build a solution together. Very often you can kind of cross sell a little bit and say, well, what about this use case? What about that? What about dashboarding? What about control room? And people that start off thinking about the heavier end of industrial, you know, whether it's machine control, process control, you have, if the VAR has the right conversations with them, you can then add on dashboarding, you can add on control room, you can add on access control, you can add on um, smart displays in the elevators, for example, you can add on temperature control in the control room. So there's there's loads of other use cases around that. So what I'd say is, you know, we've got two strong benefits there from, from Azilo as a vendor. One is our hardware all plays nice together. It's all in this unified architecture, this, this ecosystem, this building block approach. And then as a business, we we treat it holistically so we we look at the the bigger picture we don't have you know if, if the VAR was talking to their elo representative or their blue star representative or both you know we're not going to go down and say okay we're going to jim's going to come and help you with the process control and then we'll get john from to come and come help you with this or dean will come and help you with this you know we we treat it holistically as the overall solution so i think that'd be you know if we gave one message to your VAR. Uh, network and, and ecosystem is is you know we can help with multiple use cases we've got this building block ecosystem this unified architecture um, and don't think narrow think wide yeah like and it. i'll lump onto that you know in the ecosystem and thanks for bringing that up jim you know we've talked about it the isvs or we, we call technology software companies as well they're really tapped into that mm -hmm. whole ecosystem as well and that plays a really important role so not only is the hardware flexible beyond belief and and really gives you makes you quite nimble as a reseller on that front uh, but they also have those types of resources yep. behind the scenes so good as stuff. always you're not alone you're not an island not there bingo <laughs> yep <laughs> all right hey, let's wrap things up with what's tech connecting with you this is our fun segment we get to talk about something in the world of yes. tech, science, innovation that's got our eye, has our attention, or could make you question the future of humanity, which I think <laughs> Jim's particular one here might be a little bit of the latter, at least to me. I don't know. Oh, no, I'll, what we I'll, got? I'll let, him, I'll let him tell you. Uh, Jim, what's tech connecting with you right now? Yeah, so so when when we talked about this, I thought that the one thing that popped into my mind, um, and it's basically because, uh, you know, I was it's very relevant these days, is this, this whole thing about the metaverse. So... Uh -huh. I was thinking to myself, you know, you see these announcements by Facebook, they've renamed the, 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 the parent company to be Metaverse, what is it, Systems or Solutions? And I was thinking, if somebody asked me what it was, I don't think I, I could give a succinct 
explanation of what it is. Um, and you know, I was thinking it's augmented reality. It's the it's the in, it's the internet next generation. Is that internet 4.0 or 10 or you know whatever? Um, right. And you know, it's got some kind of VR augmented reality uh, element to it. And you know, there are obvious applications from a entertainment perspective, right? You know, virtual reality is already going down that path with um you know gaming um in terms of you know think about the sims and all those a few years ago and then you know now there's the virtual reality versions of that um and entertainment in terms of the the, the 3d movies and the virtual reality elements there but you know real world applications that are actually gonna enhance our lives outside of entertainment i was struggling a little bit to 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 how to say to, to explain to a third party if somebody asked me but you know if like my dad asked me for example and said so how is that going to benefit like people outside of entertainment at this point uh, well let's say a couple of days ago I, I wouldn't know but i've been thinking about it since and i thought you know the thing about industry you know digital twin the idea of of mm -hmm. being able to which again is really just augmented reality this metaverse for me is a little bit making a phrase for the sake of making a phrase um you know augmented reality showing what something looks like without being in it as mm -hmm. a way of of you know repairing something or think about uh meltdown in a nuclear reactor and you've got yeah. to go yeah. and fix something and you, you can see where the problem is due to all the sensors and cameras and you, you know space stations doing repairs or, or guiding somebody surgery you know these augmented reality in in surgery applications with you know doing it using robots and you're looking on a camera and moving the robot your hands are not actually inside the patient so i i get it but i'm i'm a little bit struggling to understand the excitement of facebook to say they're banking their whole future on it at this point i think i need help here too john yeah, john Cluson, I, well, you're usually not, really good at, at kind of be honest i'm not entirely sure myself because oh, because i've been it, in a cave because like the it last definitely couple feels weeks. very out of i'm not gonna say out of left field but you know to jim's point yes there is the technology behind what we're talking about here does have some amazing and fascinating ramifications i think that okay are very useful like you said the digital twinning you know surgery type stuff all these there's a lot of great places i think that ar is going to impact our future sure i just find it interesting that at a time when facebook is facing a lot of controversy and a lot of internal <laughs> strife they suddenly decide to rebrand and hitch their wagon to this whole metaverse thing and it just it it does it does. So it they're feels creating like, a metaverse. Is that what's happening? I don't, I don't honestly. See, know seriously, exactly. I've been like I have not paid attention at all to <laughs> the release that they did. I, I heard the name change. All I've okay. seen is the memes and like the weird ways that Mark Zuckerberg's face looks all the time when he's you know in, a, in this metaverse. Stuff. Yeah. Well, oh. well, in reality too. Oh, in reality, honest. I gotcha. <laughs> but it is. It's such a. It is such a weird. Like there's a. There is there is definitely some useful technology behind all of this that is important. But to but to Jim's point, I don't understand where Facebook fits in other than uh -huh. just, hey, let's just create another place, but make it like a virtual world instead where we can have conversations. And uh, I see. Does it all end up in the same place? Are we just sitting around virtual tables together sharing cat memes and <laughs> disinformation and, you know, whatever weird garbage just like we've been doing share. on Facebook yeah, anyway? Exactly. Right. Like, yeah. Does the feed just become, I don't know, like a virtual well, table now they can or control it even more because it's their metaverse I, and they can yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year if this is just one of those things they're just throwing out there to see if it sticks or if it, this actually becomes well, no, but to thing. jim's point i mean the, they're putting the whole company's future behind it right i, I mean I you guess, don't do a yeah. name change and all this stuff unless you're seeing all right i gotta read the press release i gotta yeah. figure out i'm sure somehow some way it doing. all ends with us giving up more of everything that we are to you know 
Oh, either that or they'll be laughed out of the world. Yeah, and, you that's know. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, that kind of feeds into my tech connecting, okay. which is, you know, I was reading up on an article about the Great Firewall of China. And and it's you know China's really up on my radar right now. Yeah. Just just a lot of things. Isn't there that, another company that just pulled? Was it YouTube that pulled? No, somebody just like another major tech company just pulled out of China today. Announced they were pulling out. Well, I mean, LinkedIn did recently. Yeah, very well. So. Well, they got and they got kind of kicked out. Um, well, yeah. So it, it's just it's fascinating. I'm telling you, there's a lot going on with the whole as it relates to China. I'm just gonna leave it at that. But it is fascinating about how this the firewall in China works. You know, in the sense that you know they have just created you know their own environment and mm-hmm. blocked everybody out and so it's, it's it's things that you would think of that would be kind of easy you are filtering right so they're just going to block youtube right, so nobody right. in china can go to youtube.com uh there's dns poisoning is a, is a technique that they use so when users connect to websites computers will contact a dns server duh uh, but the firewall works to poison the dns response re, uh, returning a corrupt address so they're using uh, that technique uh, <clears throat> self-censorship according to laws and regulations chinese firms are responsible for their content and violation will be led to harsh penalties so there's that uh, manual enforcement I like this one hundreds of thousands of civilian workers are employed all over china to enforce censorship you know, so they just they have hundreds oh. of thousands of people that are manually going in there and flagging stuff. Right now, they do they do say they're using AI technology right now to monitor some of that process. But can you imagine that? I mean, hundreds of thousands of, anyway workers, yeah. and then the 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 creme de la creme blocking vpns so you know of course you get if you're a journalist or something like that you get into china oh i'll just use this vpn as my secret way right, of getting right. out there no they got people and and, and they the term was trying to climb over the wall right, you know right. if you're in country how do you climb out of the wall nope they got that figured out too they block all they're sniffing around for vpns and anything that's happening there they they're shutting that down too so it's this holistic attack if you will on how to protect well in their eyes protect uh the citizens from information external information but it's just fascinating and it's wild to think that this is one of the world's superpowers like like a north korea (laughs) that does this kind of stuff like that clamps down on this you know on on anything coming in and out or whatever like granted they're you know they are potentially a powerful country you know in other ways but like it's still all things considered a small kind of country yeah but yes, to your point, you know, now, you know, when we're talking one of the world's top two superpowers here well, that has this and, kind and the, of clamp down and control, that's it's, it's it kind is. of scary. And the, and the commentary also gets into the distortion of it, that it's having on the society over there right. and how they're seeing a myoptic view. And, right. and how do you do that and still plug into the whole supply chain and, yeah. and deal with the global world? It's I'm telling you, man, it's there's a lot there that needs to be unpacked and yeah. will be over the next coming years. What's uh, tech connecting with you? So it's not a firewall. It's not. Uh, but honestly, kind of related to our top main topic today, uh, a part of the fourth industrial revolution is 3D printing. Yes. So uh, here's an interesting article I just came across this morning. Dubai achieves world record for first 3D printed laboratory. A whole so, laboratory? A whole laboratory. They won the Guinness <laughs> World Record for a first 3D-printed laboratory. Uh, it's the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority, or DUA. They, they have a robotics and drone laboratory uh, in Dubai that they have built all out of 3D parts. Everything was, was put together by 3D components. Uh, they're talking about how this you know reduces construction wastes, tool-related costs, minimized design to production time. Uh, and, and I think they're doing stuff where they're building prototypes and spare parts to support the government, economic, health, and scientific sectors. So just, you know, a cool new application, uh, you know, that one of those things that I think probably will 
get broader and broader and bigger and bigger over the years. So it's like, hey, we need a lab over here. Oh, yeah, got it. Yeah, we got it. We'll 3D print it and put it together. It'll <laughs> it'll be infinitely cheaper, and you know, all the parts will be 3D printed. If something breaks down, we can go and 3D print a replacement pretty quickly. So That's kind of cool. Yeah. Not the electronics, but just the space in the lab. Because yeah. here I'm envisioning in my head, you know, like this lab space. got electronics and yeah. stuff like that. But Yeah, and as always, you know, I'll put the link in the show notes for this article because you can see some inside shots. Of oh, the do they? They and, got it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it looks like your standard kind of lab. You know, yeah. there's nothing there's nothing special about it. I mean, like the exterior kind of looks very simplistic. It kind of has this sure. simplistic kind of like almost, you know, like a it's almost got like an igloo kind of look like a giant, like, you know, you know, design igloo kind of thing uh-huh. sort of to it. But, you know, it, who cares? You know, like, you know, it's the, it's a functional structure that does have some interesting, you know, appeal to it. Does so. it come with lab coats? Uh, I don't know about that. I don't All know right. if they've if they've 3D printed those or not. So, you know, we'll see. I'm sure they could. You, you got to have the gear, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how can you not have the gear? All right. Jim uh, Foster from ELO. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate having you on the show. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for your time, guys. Thanks, everybody. And until next time, uh, you know, keep climbing that firewall yes. and uh, stay connected, folks. By now, you probably know that adding touchscreens at check-in and throughout the care journey has a big impact on patient experience in healthcare. But what about the providers themselves? Give them the technology they need with ELO 03 Series Medical Grade Touchscreen Monitors. Merging ELO's best-in-class touch technology with DICOM 14 functionality enhances clinical review, improves workflows, and eliminates common keyboarding and point-click errors. Compact, clean designs make these monitors perfect for EMR documentation, image viewing, clinical collaboration, lab and pharmacy work, and much more. To learn more about these built-to-last monitors, check out the link in the show notes or contact the Blue Star ELO team.